Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast podcast. This week, we've got Mike Bellevue. He's a freelance writer and also the man behind the Duelist 1954 YouTube channel. We're talking with him about some of his personal history with muzzleloaders and firearms in general. And then he also shares some great stories about TV, movies, events that he's been to, his background. So if you're a fan of Duelist 1954 or his YouTube channel, we've got some neat stuff coming for you this week. If you haven't checked out his channels, we'll put links down in the show notes and we'll be promoting Mike's work all through this month as we promote the episode. So be sure to follow the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. See all Mike's work. Well, hi, I'm Mike Bellevue, and uh, I like to think of myself as a writer. So I think these days more people think of me as a video creator on YouTube, uh, which is a little bit ironic, but um, I've, I've been writing since the late 80s and uh, I started off with a couple of pieces of muzzleloader and from there I, I wrote a piece for Gun World which I sold and I ended up writing for Gun World for almost 10 years oh wow uh, most, mostly about black powder how to stuff that was that was kind of my niche then building building kits uh, making you know bits of gear that, that sort of thing and a friend of mine in one of the gun companies, I think around, oh, golly, I'm going to say around 97, uh, recommended that I send something into Guns of the Old West, which at the time was a fairly new magazine. I think it had been out for maybe three years. So I did. I wrote an article on cartridge conversions of cap and ball, six guns, and sent it in, and, uh, and they liked it. And they started asking me to write more stuff. And it, as it turned out, when they were expanding, uh, I was about the only person writing about black powder that wrote anything for the magazine. So they asked me if I'd write a black powder column and be the uh, the black powder field editor for the magazine. And, and I did. And I, I really enjoyed that. I did it for almost 20 years. Wow, that's awesome. And, yeah. And I, I, I wrote a lot of modern stuff. Then too, I wrote a lot of combat handguns stuff. I like all firearms. Yeah, I mean, but with, without a doubt, flintlock rifles are my favorite. But uh, the opportunities for writing about those were few and far between, and still are. Yeah. So uh, the, the cowboy gun craze was uh, was a good thing for me, and I enjoyed that. And I was a reloading editor for combat handguns magazine for a number of years um and started a youtube channel i guess about eight or nine years ago and i, I to be honest with you i really never thought i'd do that <laughs> uh, a friend of mine worked on me for about two years saying oh you should start this youtube channel and i thought well you know i'm a writer i'm not a video guy and i'm a still photographer in fact i still but for still photography, I really just enjoy that as, as an art form. Yeah. But, yeah, he said, look, you've already got the guns. You're writing an article. He said, so you pick up a video camera and shoot a fast video. Why not? So eventually he wore me down, and I thought, well, why not? So I gave it a try. And uh, it's surprisingly, it's been quite successful. I, I believe it's one of the biggest uh, – 
Black Powder channels on YouTube. We've got it, about 60,000 subscribers now. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I'll admit that's what that's what I know you from. Uh, I don't come from a generation that really reads a lot of magazines. So for me, that your videos are the, are what brought me to you. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's funny like that. I you know I I'll be honest with you. I still think of myself as a writer. Yeah. And I know you've seen some of my postings on Facebook and whatnot. I mean, I I enjoy the act of writing, even something as simple as that. And I like to think about it. I like playing with the language. But uh, I, I just find it almost ironic that after being a gun writer for probably 35 years now, uh, what I am most famous for is for being a videographer. And it, it just it just strikes me as being a little bit funny and, and a little bit ironic. I'm, I'm very happy with it. I've really enjoyed uh, doing the YouTube stuff. Um, it's, but, it's kind of interesting <laughs> that you, you talk about writing for these magazines that a ton of people read. And like you say, you what you're most known for is something that you started on your own. Well, you know, I joke about this all the time because I, I think it's just so indicative. And I guess it's it's a difference in the technology and a difference in the culture. But forever as a magazine writer, if I got 10 or 20 pieces of mail in a year, you know, fan mail or, or questions or that sort of thing, yeah. that, was, that was a lot. I started doing this YouTube thing. And within months, I was getting a hundred pieces of email a day, <laughs> uh, and and that has just continued. I mean, I have so many people asking technical questions or, or whatever. You know, sometimes in comments on on YouTube, other times just you know they get my email and they email me the questions. Or because of Facebook, I I'm only on Facebook because of YouTube, right? And well, I never thought I would get on. I was kind of, uh, I wouldn't say I'm a Luddite because I worked with computers all my life as, as part of my Navy career. In fact, I designed business computer systems, but really, it's, yeah, that's, uh, I, uh, I invented some of the computer systems that the Navy uses on the business end of them, not the hardware end of them, but how, how they were going to do the things that they did. Huh. But I had a whole design shop that, that worked for me. When when I retired, I worked for the Navy for, for 30 years. Okay. And I retired about 10 years ago, and then I was a, uh, I was a military consultant. We like to call ourselves contractors uh, for another four years. And I, I ran a, a pretty big shop of consultants uh, for one of, the, uh, one of the consulting companies. I was the operations director for the Mid-Atlantic region. Uh, for them with commercial and you know government clients but a lot of mostly military stuff was was what i did but um on the, on the side i was always a writer but i never you know i never really got into the social media stuff but then i needed to because of the youtube and i ended up getting hooked on it which is almost embarrassed uh to say that but i, I do spend more time on facebook than probably i ought to I think a lot of us do. <laughs> because everybody tells me that nobody under 50 is on Facebook anymore. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess <laughs> I guess maybe it's just uh, part of my generation. I don't use Instagram or Snapchat or 
or any of those things. Yeah, the a lot of I'm 26, and so a lot of people my age have have shifted around, um, and a lot of a lot of my peers hang out on YouTube a lot, and, and Instagram are the big ones. And I think in the early years, Facebook was certainly you know a much younger person place to hang out online, but um, they're seeing the demographics change quite a bit. You know, to, to like you said, that the 50 and over is is a large chunk of the user base now. Yeah, it's all grandparents now yeah. on Facebook. It's, uh, I, I find all that to be kind of kind of humorous, you know. And, and I guess maybe I'm still lost in the past. I'm working with a company right now to design a website for me uh-huh. to give me a place to park things and uh, work in progress and have a blog, that sort of thing. And uh, one, one of my friends, who's a younger person, said, oh, God, I don't even know anybody who looks at websites anymore. You should just set up an Instagram account and, and go from there. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, because I think what a lot of young people don't realize is that most of these social media things point to information that's on a web page. Yeah. So, you know, so when, you, when you're reading a lot of these social media things that has a link in it or, or whatever, that's just taking you to a web page right there you need still need that backbone to to host you know the meteor stuff than uh, than what you're going to have in the social media chat but anyway we'll we'll see how it goes but uh but yeah the the videos that's become a pretty pretty big part of my life in fact i'm editing three of them today <laughs> that's right you were wow. just at the uh, lake cumberland cla show is that right well, I wasn't at Lake Cumberland. I was at the Lewisburg show. Oh, okay. Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. It's a week before. Okay. And and it's a really good show, and I've gone to it for probably the last nine years. And uh, I'm I'm thinking pretty strongly about going to Lake Cumberland next year. I've never been there, but but I'll have to do one or the other. You know, it's even though it's possible to do them both because they're on sequential weekends. I just don't like to be gone from home for that long. Yeah, it's it's hard to be out on the road that long. Yeah, I mean, I used to for my Navy career, I used to travel a lot, probably fifty percent of the time. Um, I was on the road, and I, I just I enjoy a little bit of traveling, but I also like to be home with Mary Pat and the dogs, <laughs> not just uh, out on the road all the time. And and a busy part of my year is coming up now for travel because. Um, It'll be all the spring events. I'll be at School of the Long Hunter in early April. I'll be at Fort Frederick Market Fair in later April, and then I'll I'll be at the raid at Martin Station in early May. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's it's kind of come home, do the laundry, dry out the the gear, load the truck again, <laughs> go and back get out. Go. Yeah, but Lake Cumberland's on my list for for next year. I'll probably. I haven't caught the CLA show in Lexington for two years. I'll probably go out there this fall too. Yeah, that's a good show. It is. I I find if you catch like around here, if you catch the Morgantown show, or, or I don't know if you've ever been to Dixon's. I haven't. Uh, I'd really like to. That that is is a real good show. It's real different, of course, because it's outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been going to that one. Well, I think it's been running 35 years now. I was at the first one. I think I've missed 
five or six in the 35 years they've been uh, been doing it. And it's uh, it really is a, a good a good show. But you see, I'll see the same people there that I'll see at, at Lewisburg uh, and the Morgantown show. Um, and if I go to CLA, I'll see about say half or 60% of the people that I see all the time. And then 40% of the people I'll see there are people that don't get out uh, to the East coast, you know? So almost all the guys from out here will go to the CLA show mm-hmm. with big makers. They're all, they're all CLA members. So, you know, guys like Tim Williams and Mitch Yates, um, uh, the Emigs, they'll they'll all be out there. Yeah, but you know, then when I'm out there, I'll see I'll see folks like Frank House and uh, you know guys like that that I just don't see coming out here. Right, right. So, where are you? Nice. Where are you located? What state? I'm in Pennsylvania. Okay. So South Central Pennsylvania. You talked about your background in the Navy. Did your interest in firearms start? in the Navy when you're in the military there, or was it something before? No, I, my, my interest in, uh, in firearms goes back to almost when I was a toddler. Okay. Uh, I, you know, when, when I was a kid, I was born in 1954. So when I was a kid in the fifties and and the sixties, it was the great age of Westerns. Yeah. Right. I mean, every TV show, every movie, it seemed like was a Western. And I was hooked on them from the time I could start to walk. All my littlest baby pictures, all all of my toys, I always wanted cap guns and stuff like that. And um, I, that's that interest just stuck with me all my life. I mean, it you know it started when I was tiny, and it just never went away. I was always interested in guns and interested in history. That's that's kind of funny. I was. Uh, you know, from watching all those westerns, right? I was really interested in that. Yeah. And then when I was a really young kid, uh, Fess Parker played Davy Crockett on the Walt Disney Show. Yeah. And that that just captivated me. You know, the long rifles and the Indians and all that stuff. And about the same time, I remember I was I was out with my dad. We lived on a farm in northern Vermont, big dairy farm. And uh, he was probably squirrel hunting or something. I used to tag along with him all the time. But, yeah. And I said, boy, it's too bad we don't have didn't have any real Indians around here, like the Apaches or the Sioux. <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? He said, uh, he said, around here they used to have the Mohawks. He said, and believe me, if you had one of them on your back, you'd know about it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that line just always stuck with me. And... Um, he took me down to uh, Ticonderoga. Okay, yeah. Uh, down at the southern end of Lake Champlain. We lived right on Lake Champlain. We were up at the, the northern end, lived right on the shore of it. Uh, so he took me down there, and boy, I just uh, kind of got hooked as, as a little kid on history. And it, it always stuck with me, you know? So, and when uh, when Daniel Boone came on TV, oh gosh, yeah, I watch that all the time. I was. All I wanted to do was uh, get out there and shoot long rifles, and you know, it was just crazy. In fact, when I got my first 22, my father bought me a semi-automatic 
seven shot, you know, uh, detachable magazine, clip magazine, mm-hmm. semi-automatic. And, and I was a little disappointed because I had been asking for a single shot bolt action with a full man looker stock on it. <laughs> so I could pretend it was a flintlock rifle. Right. So that's crazy. I was, you know, and I was probably about 12 when I, uh, I read The Frontiersman by Alan W. Eckert. Uh-huh. And that, that just grabbed me. And uh, and I was at the time I was also reading uh, Kenneth Roberts stuff. He and he wrote about the 18th century in New England, French and Indian War and Revolutionary War. Um, some great books. And in fact, Arundel is probably his best book. I still read it every three or four years. Uh, historical novel, just just excellent. And I was just really getting hooked on that period and living in New England. You know, I was very interested in the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War. Right, because it just, and, it happened there. Yeah, right. A lot of lot of stuff happened happened there. But uh, but Daniel Boone and and Davy Crockett had a big impact on me. And and it's you know I, I interview a lot of guys for a muzzleloader because I've written a number of uh, artisan profiles for them mm-hmm. over the years. So I'll interview guys. It's it's funny, but guys my age almost invariably mention, you know, Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett is getting their interest going. And guys a little bit younger, it'll it'll be uh, Robert Redford and Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah. And, and then if, you know, if you get guys a bit younger than that, It'll be Last of the Mohegans. Yep. And it, it seems like these movies or TV shows have a huge impact on the hobby. And uh, I always say that, you know, if, if things are declining, what we really need is a really good TV show or a really good movie. And that'll that'll get things uh, get things jazzed up again. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's not the kind of thing that, you know, leads to a huge renaissance, but it gets a new group of people interested because invariably it's going to connect with people that are into it. And, you know, maybe not all of them, but some of them are going to hold on to that and then start getting into it and get interested. Oh, yeah. When, you know, it's funny in in the, uh, in the seventies, I was doing a lot of um, competitive shooting with muzzleloaders. Mm Mm-hmm. And almost everybody online had a Thompson Center pocket, and they all wanted to be Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> you know, it was just huge. It, it had a tremendous impact. And it's kind of funny, really, but because like I, I have recently watched some episodes of Daniel Boone because they're on things like MeTV. Okay, and uh, and they're awful. <laughs> I mean, they're awful, you know. And I, I look at them, I think, my God, how could I have watched that? It's just, it's absolutely terrible. I mean, they don't hold up at all. Yeah. Uh, now I will say, Davy Crockett, which was done in the fifties, actually holds up better than the Daniel Boone TV show, which, like I say, that that could be awful. Uh, and yet, when I was a kid. Man, you couldn't have pulled me away from that TV set on Thursday night, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was all I wanted to see, and it really really had a big impact. I was always much more interested in the, the eastern frontier. Definitely. Uh, I never, never got sucked into the Jeremiah Johnson stuff. 
and take off the outside. I didn't even think it was that great a movie. It was okay, <laughs> but not that great a movie. The uh, the Mountain Men with Charlton Heston and um, uh, Keith. Oh God, I think it was his first name. Stuck. Uh, but Charlton Heston started. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the Mountain Men. No, I'm gonna have uh, to add it to my list. Uh, that is a much better movie of that period. Uh, it's just a little bit humorous, but it's it's a straightforward, straightforward adventure story, and and quite good. Brian Keith, uh, okay, was the, other, was the the co-star in that. But no, those that was excellent. Jeremiah Johnson, that was just okay. Uh, not not the greatest thing. Well, maybe maybe it's good that you don't travel too much out west then, not like in Jeremiah Johnson. Maybe. I mean, I would like to. It's, it's not. I a few years ago, um, I was uh, I'm kind of semi-retired from writing now, so I'm I'm doing a few things for Muzzleloader. I'm doing you know a, a few things for American Frontiersman. Um, just doing stuff to keep my hand, and I was. I was uh, the Black Powder field editor for Gun Digest, but mm-hmm. uh, but that's over now. So yeah, I'm heading for 66, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of slow down on the work stuff. Just do the videos because I can do anything I want in a video. So I don't have to ask an editor for permission, or you know, if I want to if I want to cover it, I just cover it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, a few years ago, for American Frontiers, when they asked me to do an article on mountain man movies. That sounds like from, fun. From like the forties, you know, up to the Revenant because of the Revenant was, was pretty big. So that's what yeah. got that going. Uh, and so I did. And, you know, it's funny. Some of them are great and some of them are really not that good. Uh, some of them are a little bit cheesy, but then uh, surprisingly, like the the big sky, which was a phenomenal book, and and they really couldn't do the whole book in a movie, um, so they just kind of took a little piece of that out. But that that starred Kirk Douglas, and that was just a great movie. I mean, just great. And you can see why Kirk Douglas was such such an amazing star. The guy has an incredible charisma on screen. Uh, but it was it was really pretty cool because they didn't have replicas then. So they were using original guns, and and most of them, yeah, and they were smart. They actually were using flintlocks, which is what made much more sense for that period, you know, the 1820s. Yeah, I was Uh, was still too early. And they had had an original swivel breech flintlock rifle in there, which which was just really cool. I'm a big swivel breech fan. Who was Uh, it? They're so cool. (laughs) But, you know, then, then you get others. Like the uh, the one that preceded the Revenant, I'm trying to think. Richard Harris starred in it, uh, but it was it was another Hugh Glass thing. Oh, okay. Uh, from back in back around 1970, and my God, that was awful. <laughs> I mean, awful. The history was completely wrong. the The guns were all like Civil War muskets that they phonied up to oh. look like flints. I mean, I mean, all sorts of all sorts of bad stuff. Um, you know, so it's kind of hit or miss. Um, but it is interesting when you go back and you see one that they really did right that, that holds up and you can enjoy it today. Yeah. 
So how do you feel about the the more recent Revenant movie? I like the Revenant a lot. Now the the ending of the Revenant, like the whole third act, mm-hmm. is completely fictitious. Right, that's what I've heard. Yeah, it is. It's it's completely made up. Uh no basis in history at all. Um but it was 100% action that third act. So so that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the rest of it had, it had a lot of non-historical stuff in it. I mean, the backstory for Hugh Glass was, was not correct. A lot, a lot of things weren't right. Right. But, uh, they did a pretty good job with the material culture. So it's hard to really kick. I mean, they had some, some neat guns. They had some good action. Uh, the clothes weren't totally ridiculous. So, I mean, by and large, I enjoyed the Revenant. Uh, I mean, you got to take it for what it is, you know? Yeah. If if you're trying to get a documentary out of it, <laughs> you're going to be out of luck. Yeah. But it's, it's actually better than most of the history uh, channel documentaries I've seen for the last few years. <laughs> I mean, uh, they've, you know, they had one they did maybe two years ago on the Frontiersman, I think it was called, or something like that. And, you know, I had Daniel Boone, all these things. And, uh, and I actually, I had, I had a contract to review that and write an article for American Frontiersman on it. Uh-huh. And I watched the first two episodes of it, and I called up my editor, and I said, uh, I said, you got to rip up that contract. <laughs> I said, because you're not going to want to read what I would write about this. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, because it was awful. I mean, it's just awful. They, um, you know, they they had a lot of material culture stuff wrong. I mean, the clothes were wrong. You know, they had like tennis shoes uh, under their moccasins. So they, they had a lot of bad stuff in it. But to me, the worst thing is, but they actually had the history wrong. I mean, they they had uh, Daniel Boone's relationship to, uh, to Richard Henderson um, totally misconstrued. Uh, they they compressed some things, and and they just they portrayed things in a light that were untrue mm-hmm. as far as motivations and what was going on. And and to me, that's kind of unforgivable because if the name of your channel is the History Channel. Yeah. I can forgive you for getting the costuming wrong, but I can't forgive you for getting the history wrong. Yeah. I mean, you have to do that right. If you make a if you make a mistake with the shirt, and, oh my goodness, that shirt has a two inch wide cuff. <laughs> I never would have done that. Well, you know, okay, I forgive that. You let that one slide. Yeah, let that slide. But when you get the history grossly wrong, then that's just really hard for me to get on board with and that's that's one of my problems lately they're they're about to do a uh, biography of george washington right i've seen some things about that week. online yeah i've i've got my hopes up for it and if they dash him i'm gonna be terribly disappointed uh but their track record in recent years is really bad for actual history so we'll see so Kind of along those lines, do you see 
you know, kind of the the writing and the video work that you do, putting out accurate history and knowledge, do you see that in, in any way as like supplemental for what like the History Channel is doing? Because I've heard that from a lot of people that they're not pleased with what the History Channel does anymore. They've really gotten away from it. But to from me looking at it, kind of in tandem, you have a lot of people online just going out and sharing that history themselves. Well, I think that's... Yeah, in a way, the internet has uh, democratized knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got a lot of folks sharing stuff. Uh, and some of them know what they're talking about. Not all of and them, though. <laughs> some of them don't, you know, but that's, it, it means you have to be a little more discerning, I guess, as a consumer of, of that stuff. But, uh, you know, if you find the right, the right groups and, uh, you can get some pretty good information. Uh, so I think the, the problem with the History Channel and places like that is there's, there's, there's not a market for the real history. Not not a big enough market. This sort of thing is pretty niche. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a new streaming service out called Curiosity Stream. Okay, I think I've seen some ads for and, that. Yeah, and that's that's all documentaries. Um, and they charge $20 a month for it, Oof. which gives you an idea of what documentaries are worth to people because like Netflix or 20, they charge $20 a year for it. Oh, okay. Uh, Netflix is like, you know, 12 bucks or 14 bucks a month now, I guess. So it gives you an idea that the documentary people figure if they price it, price it more than uh, dirt cheap, nobody's going to buy it. And I think that's too bad, but I think it's true. You know, people would rather uh, rather see Pawn Stars or Desperate Housewives <laughs> than see an actual historical piece. Yeah. Except for a small market that really does love that stuff, and that, that makes it kind of tough on them. Hmm. But as to whether or not I supplement that, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what I – what I try to do in, in my videos or, or my writing is I try I try to cover something that I enjoy. Yeah. Well, whatever it might be. I, I've always figured if I like it, somebody else is going to like it. And you know, I try to give people the history of what I'm doing, the historical stuff. And I've, I've tried to find ways of expanding that I've, I've probably not been that successful i mean one of I've, I've tried a couple of, of different things and then they've done okay but they're hard to do when you're a one-man band i've i've got a video on making the hickok touch shot and uh you know this is wild bill hickok and davis mm -hmm. tut the famous gunfight in springfield missouri hickok's fight that made him famous basically was shooting davis tut because he walked across the town square with Hickok's watch. <laughs> I, I mean, just to kind of boil it down to its essentials. Uh, so anyway, the the gunfight took place at 75 yards, which is kind of interesting because today we we think if you get past seven yards, you know, you're wasting your time, right? Yeah. But they didn't think anything and blazing away at each other at 75 yards, and Hickok shot Tut right to the heart at 75 yards. Uh, so I, I did a video on making that 75-yard shot, and but I told the whole story of the Hickok 
disagreement leading up to it mm-hmm. and tried to make that as dramatic as I could. And I don't know how well I succeeded in that. I was playing both sides of, uh, of the aisle. Um, but I've tried a few of those. I did one, uh, Jeff Milton, who's a very interesting guy. He's the father of the Border Patrol. Oh, really? But, oh, yeah. Yep. And he was quite old when he did that. But he started, uh, he started off as a Texas Ranger when he was 17 in 1880. His, his father was the last Confederate governor of Florida and uh, committed suicide after the war when everything was lost. And uh, Jeff and his family ended up going from being genteel planters to, you know, to just scraping by. And Jeff went out west to Texas, worked uh, some stores and ranches as a young teenager, and then became a Texas Ranger. And that was the start of his career. And after that, he did every kind of law enforcement you can imagine. Hmm. Um, quite quite a fascinating guy, but his most famous gunfight was in 1903 or 1904. I think it was, it's, it was in Fairbanks, Arizona. And he was, um, he was an express guard, uh, on a train. Okay. And he got robbed by, by this gang, uh, because they didn't think he was going to be on board. He had switched nights with somebody and it was a tremendous shootout. I mean, they kind of opened the doors at Fairbanks, and these guys sh- started shooting from the crowd on the platform with high-powered rifles and uh, and did quite a bit of damage to them, but he managed to shoot two of them after he'd been pretty much shot to pieces. Wow. Uh, it's, it's quite a story, actually. Yeah. But uh, I uh, I did a reenactment of that several years ago, and then I did – one of his last gunfight, which I always find to be kind of interesting. Um, I had, I had picked up, I was doing antique firearms calendars for, for a couple of years for, for a company that makes calendars for like your dentist, you know, to give away to you. Okay. Yeah. So they decided instead of kittens and balloons, they'd like to try one with antique guns. For, so for a couple of years I did that. And I, I picked up a uh, 1907 Savage, Semi-automatic, 32 ACP, uh-huh. for uh, for a picture I was going to do. So that was the last gun, except it was in 380 that Jeff Milton had a gunfight with. Huh. It was in 1917. He was in his 50s, and uh, he had, you know, roared into Tombstone, Arizona, and his uh, Model T Ford, and this fellow named Fred Koch had just robbed the bank. And killed the manager. Probably didn't mean to do that, but he did. Uh, and he took off. And Jeff and, and a buddy chased him down in Jeff's Model T. <laughs> and Jeff was shooting at him with uh, with this little pocket pistol, basically, and hit him in the arm. Uh, and they stopped and gave himself up. And at the at the trial. The judge said, uh, Jeff, were you trying to hit him in the arm? Because I don't think I've ever seen you miss anybody. And Jeff said, hell no, I was trying to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But, well, thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's, you're making me want to watch and, and read more into some Western stuff. That's really neat. There's some great stories. Well, I like, I'll be honest with you, I like all of history uh, from the Stone Age 
to like a week before yesterday. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's all fun for me, but uh, I, I definitely like the American frontier the best, but, you know, I love all sorts of history. I like medieval history, um, Renaissance history, ancient history, you name it. Yeah. It's all fascinating. I, th- I think it's it's fun just to look back and, and see what came before. Well, it's all a continuum. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. I mean, there's a big difference, of course, if you, you know, look a thousand years ago against today. But uh, you know, time kind of flows, right? I mean, we break it up into these manageable chunks. Um and then we put boundaries around that, like, they're really significant. But it's kind of like the Old West. I always remind people that a lot of those guys who are there in the Old West were still there in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah. You know? It, uh, I mean, Jeff Milton didn't die until the 40s. And he huh. had an active career up into his 70s. You know, Wyatt Earp was uh, in Hollywood in the 20s. Uh, he was good friends with um, uh, with Ford, the director. Okay. Uh, directed all the John Wayne movies. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it's not like at 1900, all these guys just stopped operating. Right. You know, and uh, went to the rest home or something. <laughs> and just signed yeah, out, you know. Kind of, it just kind of flowed through. I mean, Bat Masterson became a sports writer in New York City, uh, and he was doing that up into the late twenties. Huh. That must have been something to have lived, you know, kind of at the end of the Civil War and then all the way up into the nineteen forties. I mean, that's a talk about a cultural rocket ship of change. Well, yeah, but you know, if you if you think about it, if you think about this century, you'd see the same thing. Yeah. I think I think you know any you take any like eighty year lifespan and you're gonna see immense changes, oh definitely, you know I mean that people that were say dying around the time of the civil war right I mean they were born during the revolution, you know I mean when you think about that uh some of them were British subjects when they were born, right. And they they were dying during one of the the first modern wars. Okay, yeah, I, didn't, I never thought about that. You know, they they would have gone from not just an agrarian society, but a pre-industrial society. Yeah, to a society that was uh, industrial, that had brand names, that had a lot of the stuff we have now. Hmm. So, no, my my grandfather's um, the one is is 95 now he lived through the depression and world war ii and then you know saw the moon launch and the moon landing and you know and now uses a cell phone to call his grandkids <laughs> yeah well that's a big thing yeah my, my dad who, who passed away in the 90s he was born in 1930 um but he, he died he was only 65 when when he died but when i was when i was in college he used to say to me uh well you think things are so much different now when I was a kid, he said, but when I was a kid, we had everything that we have today. And I said, oh, come on, you didn't have TV. He said, hey, we had TV. Not, most people didn't have any. Right. <laughs> he said, but they had already invented it. And it was, it was out there. It was already commercial when I was a kid. He said, we had telephones, got cars, TVs, 
you name it. Everything we got, you know, now we had that radio. It's all there. Uh, he said computers, they had started computers in the 1890s. He said they got just better now. <laughs> and, but, but you know, the, the thing I, I always think about is that's pretty much true. Yeah. But from the point where he died until now, technology has advanced you know, like 500%. I mean, when, when he died, cell phones were great big suitcasey things that, uh, <laughs> you know, also look like World War II field radios. Um, maybe they had them, but, uh, but like the world has completely changed now. Like you can't find a phone booth now. Right. Right. They just don't exist. I mean, a lot of things no longer exists and nobody nobody uses yellow pages anymore and in fact younger people never even heard of yellow pages oh yeah it's, uh, a, it's antiquated now in fact a lot and this always surprised me uh, because i'm i'm a kind of a watch fanatic but when when i was working uh, with the consulting company a lot of my younger employees didn't own wristwatches mm-hmm which I couldn't believe. I said, how do you know what time it is? I said, oh, I'll check my phone. And, I mean, I had a phone, but I would never check it for the time. <laughs> because I grew up looking at your wrist for the time. Uh, but that's just how much things have changed and how much the technology has really changed the way we do things now. Yeah. And I think part of, part of it is that that's why I enjoy these 18th century events. Uh, though technology is unfortunately stuck their head into that but when i go to these things i take my cell phone i turn it off and i put it in the glove compartment of my truck yeah and i don't look at it for a week so i see guys around camp that are, are like still glued to their phones i get i think why would you want to come out here and be immersed in this stuff and then spend every five minutes on on your phone checking uh, checking this or checking that but uh, but i like giving up all the technology i want no radio no newspapers no, nothing. I want to sleep under the canvas, cook my food on a fire, and just leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, just unplug from it all. Yeah, I I get a little old for it now, so I haven't for the last few years. But for a lot of years, I would go out in the fall, and I would take a solo 18th century hunt, uh-huh. uh, either for deer or for squirrels, depending on what time I could get away. I'd take a week off. I'd go out alone and live completely 18th century oh, wow. out of the woods. And I didn't want to see another person. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want anybody to ruin that illusion for me. If I ran into somebody else, I'd probably have buried them somewhere because I just did not I did not want to be intruded on with uh, with the twentieth or twenty first century. Right. That's a that's a personal dream of mine. I'd really like to <laughs> put apart some time to go spend a weekend or a week would be just amazing. Just going out and just hanging out in the woods and ignoring the rest of the world for a little bit. That sounds really nice. It, it is a great reset. I mean, I, I used to, when I worked for the Navy, well, when I, when I retired, I was the head of uh, maritime weapon system support. So I was in charge of all the logistics and supply for ships and submarines, uh-huh. as opposed to the aviation Navy. That's the other, the other half of the Navy. So I was pretty intense job I had, you know over 200 people working for me and it was a 24 hour a day job <laughs> you know, it just worked all the time well because bad stuff happens in the world 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was our job to make sure we were ready for that. So when I was doing something else, I wanted to be completely something else. <laughs> right. And that's that's why I started taking those uh, those solo hunts. And it, it was a great mental reset. You know, you come back smelly, dirty, full of whiskers, and uh, <laughs> thoroughly relaxed. Well worth it. So if you get a chance, just do it. Just yeah. take your gear. Go out somewhere. You you live in Indiana? Yeah, yeah. I'm up in northern yeah. Indiana, just about an hour south of Michigan. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I own a, a property in the woods, which is where my range dualist den is. And uh, I always joke that anybody who owns woodland property realizes that you spend more time working on it than you do playing on it. <laughs> oh yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize. They think trees just kind of sit there and, and you know, trails just kind of happen. But there's a lot of work that right. goes into it, especially now with the, all the invasive species and things. It really becomes a headache. Yeah, and trees fall down. I mean, we've been so wet these last couple of years. Yeah. That, you know, you get a good windstorm, and the next thing you know, you got a huge tree block in one of your trails. you got to get out there with a chainsaw and spend a couple of days cutting all that up. Yeah. You mentioned... <laughs> A little bit earlier on the call, um, I can't I can't quite remember it, but it's something about modern handguns. W what was the interest there, or what what's your background in that area? I, you know, I like all firearms. Yeah, and um, I I like modern guns as much as I like the old ones, almost. Uh, so I've always shot modern guns as well as the old guns. I mean, I had my first muzzleloader. I guess I built it when I was around 20, 18 or 20. Uh, but, you know, I had 22s and shotguns Winchester 94s before I, I had my first muzzleloader. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested. And I've always been interested in handguns, I think, because of watching all the cowboy movies. So I've had handguns for like as long as I could have them, uh, you know, since I, I was, well, actually my father would get them for me when I was 18. But right. So anyway, I've, you know, I, I, it's like anything else. I, I have to live in the 21st century, even though I like playing in the 18th century. So I carry a 1911 every day and I work out with it. <laughs> uh, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of modern handgun writing. It's not. I never considered it my forte because I'm not. Uh, I don't have a police background or you know that sort of thing. Right. Right. So you know, it's a lot of that stuff is more for those guys. I think to write with credibility, but I've done a lot of reloading. So when I became the reloading editor of Combat Handguns, that. Uh, uh, I was already writing for combat handguns. So, you know, that's something I like. So I, I reload uh, 25 or 30 different calibers. Wow. From old old West calibers up till, you know, modern stuff, 10, 10 millimeter, you name it. Uh, so, you know, it's just always been an interest of mine. I, I collect uh, Cold War military pistols. Ooh. So, uh, and I also collect double action cold revolvers. Okay. A small collection of those. Uh, along with 
every cap and ball revolver ever made. And I've got a couple of cold single actions and, you know, all the clones. And, yeah. Uh, but I've, I've got, so I've got modern guns. I've got a fair number of antique pistols, a couple of antique rifles, but uh, a fair number of antique pistols. I've from cap and ball uh, up through, you know, old West type cartridge guns. Uh, I just I enjoy them all. I shoot them all. <laughs> I, I even reload rimfire cartridges. To oh really? Shoot some of them. Yeah. Uh, I reload thirty-eight rimfires. I've got a uh, I've got a Remington police model, which was made in cap and ball, and then later as a cartridge conversion to thirty-eight uh, thirty-eight rimfire. And I've I've got I've got a thirty-eight rimfire. It was made in eighteen seventy-three. Huh. It's a fun little little gun to shoot, but I've got a, a forty one rimfire, pocket pistols, you know that sort of thing. But from the eighteen uh, seventies, wow. I, I like the old stuff mostly. Yeah, it's got a lot of character, yeah. I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't own much stuff newer than a nineteen eleven. Yeah, uh, but I've, uh, I, I like double action revolvers. Particularly the older ones, I think they're a lot of a lot of fun. There's just something about them that they're very mechanical. You mm-hmm. know, it's just something about the whole mechanism and and that period. So I, I find it all interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, rifles are still probably my number one my number one passion. I, I really uh, I really enjoy them. So I try to do a few videos on that. It's there's no secret that cap and ball revolvers are what people want the most for me oh really and oh yeah that um those are the most popular videos i do were the the cap and ball stuff and and that's most of what i do the other i do a lot of build videos in the winter time mm-hmm. i've noticed those well it's hard to get out and shoot you know and I, yeah. I like building rifles i'm not that good at it but i like doing it so a few years ago maybe four or five years ago I hadn't built a rifle for like 20 years, but I just uh, had the yen. So I wanted to make this Bucks County rifle, uh-huh. and I decided to video it. I thought, oh, I'm going to do it. I'll video it. And I really thought it would be the only build that I ever videoed. It was like a 32-part series. And uh, as it turned out, people wanted more. <laughs> so I've been videoing more of them. It's, uh, it's not the most popular thing I do, um, but the people who like it – really like it so I, I feel like if i didn't do it for him i'd be letting them down yeah because it's a smaller audience who's interested in that but their interest is very high uh so and, and i hear from a lot of them at shows you know if i go to dixon's that sort of thing that's what people want to talk about hmm. but mo- mostly it's the cap and ball and yeah. in fact i was i was at school of the long hunter last year which uh it's at prickett's fort west virginia okay it's a fun event. It's uh, it's it's a learning as well as you know, 18th century camping event. It's not a shooting event, but mm-hmm. it's it's more more of a learning environment at the fort. It's it's just a very cool 18th century thing. So, Mark Baker. I don't know if you're familiar with Mark. The name sounds familiar. He he's one of the uh, the the big the big names in 
living history, mm-hmm. 18th century living history. He used to write the muzzleloader. Okay. Uh, years ago, but uh, he's he's one of the guys. He and John Curry are probably two of the guys that really popularized trekking. Oh yeah, definitely. And all that. So, so they're they're like of an age. Um, so he was he was doing a program at the fort uh, as as part of the school of the Long Hunter, and I I, I had a gig to cover the school for American Frontiersman, write an article on it. So before he did his thing, I took him aside to photograph him and do that stuff. So I introduced myself, and he said, "Oh, you're the Captain Ball Revolver guy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would have thought he would have known me more from my 18th century stuff. As it turns out, the YouTube cap and ball revolver stuff trumps everything else. Huh. That's interesting. So. I know um, John Curry, I've, I've known for a long time. He does a lot of trekking articles for Muzzle Blast magazine. And right. I see a lot of, I, I try to share as many of the articles as, as I can online, you know, in parts of them and little teasers and things. But I think by and large, the John Curry articles are what people compliment the most. And people love seeing people going out and trekking, you know, and, and living simply and, and doing things the hard way like that. Yeah, John's, uh, John is very good. John's a friend of mine. Okay. And, uh, I, I really enjoy his writing. I have to admit, I, I enjoy that a lot. I'm getting to the point now where these bones are getting a little too old. To get out and do it all the time, too old and too fat. But uh, <laughs> I still appreciate that. John's about my age and he's still out there doing it. So I, I should probably get out and do it more. But I've, I've become a fair weather tracker. Right. If I know it's going to be good for a couple of days, I'll go out and do it. But I'm not going to get rained on or get snowed on or any of, any of that stuff. I'm, <laughs> I'm beyond that being fun. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've kind of had an itch. It's we've had some snow here and I, I see guys on lines going out and making a little winter camp, you know, for a couple of days. And yeah. the, the challenge of that is quite alluring to somebody my age. Yeah. It's fun. I used to do that all the time. That's great. Uh, it, you know, just take off for a couple of days and go, uh, go up in the forest north of me over here in the, uh, in the state forest. Um, like I say, now it's, it's going to be nice weather. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do it in the winter. I don't do it in the middle of the summer. I'm like a couple of days in the spring, a couple of days in the fall. Yeah, you know, I'll get out and do that. Go go hiking and set up a camp. It's just it's just fun. Yeah, and that's I think that's what it's about. It's just having some fun. I like to give everybody a chance to plug, you know, their work and their website and you know where people can find them. You know, so if there's anything that you want to talk about or mention, you know, to to get the word out, you know, this is kind of your time to take a few minutes and and share that. Uh, well. I, Appreciated the opportunity to, to talk to you. Yeah, this uh, has been great. And since we've been talking about YouTube, my YouTube channel is Duelist1954. Uh, and I have the same channel on uh, another site called Full30, full30.com, okay. which is just Duelist. Uh, but the same videos go up on, on both of them. Full30 is dedicated just to firearms. Uh, oh, that's neat. So, yeah, it is. I, I think it's fun. Um, and then for writing, I appear periodically in Muzzleloader and uh, American Frontiersman. And, you know, I expect to keep that up. So just keep your eyes open. And yeah. I'll pop up somewhere. 
Yeah, we'll do our best to we'll put links to, you know, all, all of your pages and things in the show notes. So if if anybody's listening that wants to uh, check out your work, that'll be an easy way for them to to get to that pretty quickly. It's been a lot of fun. It's um, I mean, I get out and try to do as many videos as I can, but this is something that's nice. And it's been nice to do over the winter, you know, where I can sit down and talk with somebody, you know, for an hour or so and and get something out there, you know, when it's they're not events or shoots going on. <laughs> right. That's the thing about the winter. It gives you an opportunity to catch up on other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it seems Nobody like a lot of people stuff. take the winter to um, to work on builds and things because I think you're, everybody's stuck inside, so everybody starts building a new gun or something. <laughs> yeah, that's – I've been working for three winters on this York County rifle. Oh, have you? Yeah. Usually I'm not that slow, but uh, I've, uh, well, I told you, for a couple of years I had a, ca- a calendar gig, and that was also during the winter. Okay. So that was, that would like eat up a month or so in my winter, though so the money was phenomenal, so I really could not complain about it. Right. But uh, this year I've got a little bit more time, so... I think I'm going to finish it up That's this great. year, and then I'll have to decide what to build next year. <laughs> <laughs> We'd once again like to thank the guys over at the Primitive Pursuit podcast. If you haven't been following them, we've been shouting them out for a few weeks now, but their episodes just keep getting better and better. They keep finding these great characters. I don't know where they find them, but they just keep finding these neat guys to interview and talk about everything from period archery to traditional muzzleloading. They've got some neat stuff going. So if you like the primitive or traditional parts of muzzleloading or archery, you've got to check these guys out. The podcast, again, is Primitive Pursuit. You can follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Primitive Pursuit. Muzzle Blast Podcast is the official podcast of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. The Muzzle Blast Podcast is the sister publication to the Muzzle Blast Magazine. We've been publishing the Muzzle Blast Magazine here at the NMLRA since 1933. It's the official membership magazine of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. So if you like what we're doing here or want to hear more or read more, we have a huge back catalog of magazines that you can access as a member digitally. And we come out with a new magazine each month. So you can get it digitally emailed to you or mailed right to your door. It's packed with tons of original articles from you know, muzzleloader building, competition muzzleloader shooting, muzzleloader hunting, and traditional craft stuff. It's, it's jam-packed every month. The team at Muzzle Blast work really hard to make a great magazine, and they just, they just keep making it better. If you'd like to support the show or like what you're hearing, Go to nmlra.org, and you can join the NMLRA. We've got a quick form in the store, and um, you'll save 10% off your membership or merchandise if you use the code PODCAST10. That lets us know you came from the show, and uh, it's just a little thank you for listening. We had the SHOT Show last month, but February is shaping up to be pretty busy as well. This week, I'm going down to interview Yankee Doodle Muzzleloaders. They put on the Kalamazoo Living History Show up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That'll be at the end of March. And then this coming weekend, we'll be at the Connor Long Rifle Living History Trade Fair in Noblesville, Indiana. It's kind of one of the first shows in the area, and it's one I've gone to for many years. So I'm excited to go down there and, and film and interview some craftsmen and vendors that, you know, help keep this sport alive. And then 
next month we'll be heading up to the Kalamazoo Living History Show. And by that time, it's pretty much spring and events around here start kicking up. So we'll be getting on the road some more and, um, and just bringing you a lot more from the muzzleloading and living history world. So thank you so much for listening and have a great day.